And I'm not trying to disrespect anybody who calls himself a woodworker, but I'm not a woodworker. I'm a businessman and my job is sales. The shop stuff, in the shop, making this stuff, that's the easy part. It's continually landing business. That is the most difficult part. That's the voice of Doc Wright, owner of The Right Edge, and I'm excited to talk with him right after this word from our sponsor. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Jobber. Jobber brings people and technology together by keeping jobs on track, customers happy, and your business organized. Jobber also just recently launched a new grant program, Boost by Jobber, a program providing $100,000 to 20 small local home service businesses across the U.S. and Canada. So whether you're just starting your business or you're a well-established business, you're invited to apply for a grant. Just visit BoostByJobber.com. That's BoostByJobber.com. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Doc Wright, owner of the Dallas, Texas-based furniture company, The Wright Edge. Doc's furniture is all custom and made with live edge exotic woods. He's made furniture for celebrities, athletes, musicians, and I guess there's probably some regular people in the mix too. All his pieces are custom, but the one thing they all have in common is that they are big. And I'm talking gigantic. The type of wood you see and can't imagine where a table that big would even go. Those are the types of pieces he sells, and sells them he does. His company's success is growing by leaps and bounds, and I'm so happy to get a chance to sit down and talk with him. We talk about contracts, importing lumber, being arrogant in the industry, and learning your worth as a business. Doc is outspoken on his ideas, so be warned, there is some salty language in this episode, but that just comes from his passion about the industry. Like the exotic trees he uses for his work, originally he came from a very different world altogether. No, I'm actually a scientist by trade. Um, I was working as a geologist for a little company, and uh, I have a degree in geology and a minor in chemistry, and I was doing that, so when I got into this, it was just a lot of hard-headedness, and then I don't know, I see everything in ones and zeros. Either it makes sense or it doesn't. And most things in business, in my humble opinion, are logical. You know, weigh the cost out on either side. Which one comes out? Okay, well, let's do that then. It's a very hard lesson to learn, but emotions and business do not always mix. No emotions are ever allowed in business. You're all primed and ready to talk business. I love it. Uh, but let's set the table first before we sit down for the main course. How did furniture and you become a thing? You're a scientist. It seems like a pretty easy transition into furniture making. Uh, well, not not really. So how, how did you actually get into the world of woodworking and furniture making? I guess it really wasn't my choice. I wasn't somebody who was already a woodworker that decided to go into furniture. Um, I had never woodworked a day in my life and I just rebuilt a neighbor's patio just, you know, out of like two by fours and two by sixes, two by eights. And then a friend of mine, uh, Nate Forty, who owns Blue Bonnet Construction, hit me up and was like, hey, I just bought this table from Creighton Barrel. I'd love to have a live edge bench. Think you can make it? I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can make anything. So then I found Andy, the guy who's now our welder. He was harvesting, milling, and drying all of his own wood. Found him on Craigslist, bought two initial pieces of red oak from him. 
made the bench, ended up making um, Nate's coffee table. And then after that, I made a few smaller pieces and then it just took off from there. So I really wasn't kind of my choice. I had no plans on doing furniture, it just happened. It's funny because if people see the work that you do now, uh, the words smaller pieces don't really come into the equation that much nowadays. Back, back in the day when I could move stuff around by myself. Let's actually pick up from there, starting with the materials you use. You've made a name for yourself, and that name is Big Exotic Wood Furniture. We make ungodly big stuff. That is your calling card. That is what you are known for. Those are the furniture pieces you are known for. That is your business model. But with that business model comes challenges. And that's really why I wanted to talk with you on this show today. Because when you make furniture, yes, like most people, you start with getting clients, starting with designs, etc. But when it actually comes time to build your furniture, you can't just go down to the local lumber yard to get your materials. Your work is, like I said before, incredibly big and exotic. So you need to import your materials. How did the idea of importing plant itself in your brain? How did you start with that? Um, price. Uh, that's the number one reason why I import. I can get bigger, prettier stuff at a fraction of the cost than anybody across the country can sell domestics. So you look at some of the, you know, like, I'm not going to name drop, but you look at some of the major distributors across the country, you know, they're trying to sell stuff for anywhere from 35 to $65 a board foot. And on average, you can buy walnut anywhere from like 15 to $35 a board foot. Yeah, but you're still buying a relatively small piece of wood. I can get 25 foot by 55, 56 inch wide for less than $6 a board foot. How did you start this process of importing? It is a lot different than the process that a lot of people take in getting their materials. And you started it right from the beginning. Okay, so you're asking me about logistics. Yeah, let's start there. Okay, so um, when I first got started with the exotics, we actually got approached by a middleman company out of Los Angeles who wanted to broker this deal. So we did that for the first two years. And then I decided to walk away. I wanted to renegotiate pricing because we were the biggest buyer. They said no. So then I found a direct source in Costa Rica, basically cut out the middleman. So it was my first time importing. And the process is the same if you're dealing with somebody across the country. You get pictures with dimensions, you get you know an inventory list, uh, species, everything. And then, you know, based on those pictures, I go through and because I've been doing this a while, I know if something catches my eye, I know it's going to catch, um, you know, one of my uh, customers or clients eyes. So go through the pictures, pick out everything until we fill up either a 20 foot or 40 foot container. Once that container is finalized, um, reach out to a brokerage surface who handles customs, which is cheaper than what you might think. Um, on my last container, I think they it, they cost me like $750 and they handle everything. They send you all the paperwork for your permits. They send you all the paperwork you need to file with the government to get your importing license. And you know, you can do all that online. It takes about 24, 48 hours to get your permit. And then you put 50% deposit down on your container um, when it's being loaded. And then I pay the other 50% when it's on the boat. And then 
So once you ever that out, your brokerage company, and depending on who you're buying from, they'll handle and include the pricing from getting it on the boat to whatever port is closest to you. For me, it's Houston. And then the brokerage company actually can figure out the shipping logistics from the port of Houston to my shop in Dallas. And so once you include all that pricing, it's still a lot cheaper than to buy domestically. Numbers don't lie. And I know that you keep careful track of everything that happens in your books. So if it's working for your bottom line, then it's working for your business. Let's jump from stuff that's happening overseas to stuff that's happening right in your own backyard. You just opened up a showroom, an actual brick and mortar showroom where people can go and look at your work. Why did you decide to go with that physical location when so much of the world is going online? Number one, it was a really good opportunity. So one of my best friends, Joey Bardwell, um, his side hustle was he started a leather company and then he bought out a bigger leather company and he leased this space that now is our showroom. Well, they just had their second kid and he started a new job in medical sales and he basically needed to put needed to put it on hiatus. So he hit me up and he's like, hey man, do you kind of like want to sublease part of the space from me? And I was like, so I'm not on the lease. He's like, correct. I was like, done. So it was a, basically it was worth the risk and a really good litmus test to see if we could number one, sell finished products, which turns out we can't because um, all of our clientele, based on our price points, nobody wants something pre-made. They all want something custom made specifically for them. So the idea behind the showroom kind of has morphed and changed into basically a really good initial meeting spot to host clients. Okay, so it's transitioned from your new showroom into your new office space. Pretty much. I'm only there on Saturdays and uh, my employee Jennifer is there to handle all the weekday meetings. Now, I know we can probably both agree that it's not a happy thing that you tried the showroom out and it didn't work, but it is probably a good thing that you did give it a try and you saw where your core audience lies. And your core audience is not ready-made furniture. Your audience is custom pieces. Where do you find these clients who are looking for such specific custom pieces? A lot of it, honestly, is through the website. So really good SEO work, working with a company that's also here in Texas. Um, they handle all that. Um, I do not pay for Google ads. Um, we've done all growth um, organically. So I don't pay for Instagram ads. I don't pay for Facebook ads. Um, so if I'm being real honest, we're still trying to figure out how to grow that audience. But with some of the media exposure and some of the um, pro athletes and stuff like that we become friends with, words getting out by word of mouth, running in that circle. So it's between the website and word of mouth, I would say, are the two biggest. And then we still do a lot of work with interior design firms and architecture firms. And most of those, if they're local, are handled by my brand rep, who is a multi-line rep. So he goes out and handles all those meetings. And then when a job does come up, they contact him, he vets it, make sure their pricing is up to snuff, and then he sends it over to me to take over. You're getting clients through a lot of different ways. You're getting them through word of mouth, you're getting them through celebrity clientele, you're getting them through your website, and now you're adding in a furniture rep, somebody who's representing your furniture line out in the field, which is great. It probably takes a lot of work off of your shoulders getting in new clients. 
How did you decide to go down that path of getting representation for your furniture? Uh, when I first started out, I didn't even know this was a thing. I just kind of figured out, you know, how to start getting in with interior design firms and stuff. And um, actually a guy that I had met at a Christmas party a couple years prior saw one of our original portfolios on a coffee table. So he picked it up and hit me up and he was our first brand rep. And that only lasted like two or three months. He was not a good fit. I think he represented our product well and actually didn't even understand what our product was. And so let him go <clears throat> and then hired this other lady on that was wanting to be a brand rep and it just wasn't for her. So then the brand rep we've had now for about two years, um, he came highly recommended from a designer that we used to do work with. So him and I sat down and we just clicked and he represents like, <clears throat> like really high end Persian rugs. Um, basically everything that he rep like also represents the other lines he does all fit within our price point. So he's kind of like one of the upper end, um, upper echelon brand reps. So it just kind of fit and it's a time saver. You know, he's not on salary, he's purely commissioned. So whenever he does bring a job in, he gets 10% of the entire job, but he has to run it down, run down the pricing, and then hands it over to me. I do the design and send in the estimate. Now, I'm not saying that having a brand rep or somebody on the business side is the only way to run a company because people run companies all different ways, but it definitely is very helpful. I know people who are trying to do both, both build and do the business side of it. And they are spending three quarters of their day in the office, writing back to emails and chasing down clients. If you have somebody who's delivering clients straight to your doorstep, every single day and all you need to do is focus on the building that is worth its weight in gold it is isn't it you know even if you go to our website we have minimum price points on our website so you know if you try to come at us with a dining room table well our starting price point is ten thousand. that's where they start regardless of size we we have a standard for what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do and we figured that out off once you've been in business for a while you understand your product costs, your material cost, your labor cost, and then that sneaky little thing that a lot of people don't pay attention to, which is profit and loss. So we know based on that standard where we actually start seeing marginal profits. And so that's our starting point. And I think that is crucial. Anybody starting out needs to understand their pricing. Yeah, pricing is pricing. Pricing is the, the business killer. People don't add it up right and they're just leaking money and they don't know where they're leaking it from. Now you said at the beginning you're a very ones and zeros type of person. There's not a lot of gray room in your mind in business. What type of discounts do you give to clients, to designers, to people you work with? I know that you do some really big projects and there's probably a lot of pushback on your pricing. When you say a price, do you stick to that price or is there a negotiation involved? There is no negotiation. We don't offer discounts to design firms. We don't do wholesale pricing, nothing. Um, if you want that kind of quality, you know, there's 50 other people that you could hit up. Um, I say this a lot and I'll say it again, but what separates you from the rest of the pack when it comes to selling your product? And a large thing for us is our size and our quality. 
especially our finish quality, there's not many companies out there that I've gone and seen in person where like, yeah, it looks great in the pictures, but dude, that thing is dog in person. And we place a premium and we never sacrifice quality. If something's not up to our snuff, we'll redo it. Like we have no problem stopping the process and redoing it. Um, what was the second part of that question? <laughs> that That is passion right there. You have passion for your work. You have passion for your business, for the pieces that you put out. Forget the second question. Let's, let's go on from there. Let's talk about quality. Now, when you're building stuff, you put all the quality you can into that build. But when it goes out into the world, that's that's a different that's a different conversation altogether. People treat furniture how they want to treat it, and it's not always the best. How do you guarantee your work? What type of contract do you have in place for work that's been placed in the field that is out of your control that is now in the client's control? So there's two things that come with our furniture. Uh, number one, there is a two-year manufacturer warranty. And because of our processes and what we've done, um, I'm not gonna go into details because it took me a couple years to kind of figure out the right wording on the warranty, but it's very arrogant. Um, a thing that is lost in the furniture community is having an ironclad warranty. Because if something happens to that table, like if a crack develops, if it splits or it warps, what are you gonna do to fix it? And I cannot tell you the amount of people that hit me up to fix other people's It's weekly at this point. So having a really good warranty and then having a maintenance and um, finish contract. So depending on what type of finish we use, whether it's a polyurethane or, you know, um, high solid wax oil, like a Lucero, Rubio, Osmo, whatever it is, um, you're buying a functional piece of art treated accordingly. So there are steps in there with products of what are safe to clean it with, what are not to safe to clean it with. And because we know how finish reacts to sunlight, heat, if a client does something stupid, we know what it is. And that words or voids the warranty. Or if something does happen like a crack, yeah, we go take care of it. We're very cocky and arrogant with our warranty. Well, you deserve to be. You put a lot of work into your pieces and the quality shows. And that's why you've been successful. That is the end process after it's already been dropped off. But let's go back to the beginning of this journey. When you first start talking with a client, they've either found you through your website, through word of mouth, or through your furniture rep, and they're ready to go. These are big pieces that you're building. And the bigger they are, the more upfront cost there is for you. What does your payment structure look like when you're building a piece for a client? 50% down and then 50% upon when we're done. I learned that the hard way. It's not install and delivery, especially for corporate jobs where there are gonna be construction delays. Like we have three tables right over here headed to Choctaw's new half billion dollar casino that were supposed to be delivered at the end of December. And then this 39 foot table that is right in front of me, that was supposed to be due early March. And now it's already pushed back to mid-May. So we get paid when we're done, not install and delivery. You don't hear that a lot in this industry, even though you should. You know, I hear a lot of people 
asking for payment on delivery or even payment after delivery. But if you finish your piece, if you finish your work, then that work is done. And it doesn't matter if the client's ready to receive it or not. Your piece of the bargain is finished. Do you get a lot of pushback when you have that in the contracts, when you actually have to enforce that? And how do you justify that a piece is done? Is it a sign-off? Is it pictures? Do you have to have the client come to the space to actually take a look at it? Or is it just based on your word? No, um, anybody who works with us gets an overabundant amount of communication. Anytime I'm working on that piece, they're getting updates. And so they get to see the entire progress of the build. And when we do have that conversation, it's like, okay, cool. Well, we'll be done next week. So go ahead and cut that check. And they're like, uh, what? Sometimes they're kosher with it. Sometimes they understand. And basically it just comes down to how good are you at communication? And basically the way I tell it to them is, look, this was the original target deadline. We're still on schedule. You guys are delaying it. So you guys are now asking me to hold on to this, store it, and then carry all that labor that I need to be paid out for for an additional two months. Explain to me how that's fair. 99.9% of the time they come back and they're like, good point. We'll send out the check next week. When I listen to your voice, I hear the exact same thing that I hear in the voices of so many successful furniture business owners that I've talked to. And that is a chip on your shoulder. That is the feeling that you have been burned in this industry before and you've come out stronger with the knowledge not to make those same mistakes again. And that's the exact reason for this podcast. So people can listen, learn from your mistakes so they don't make them on their own. Because a lot of these mistakes are business killers and not all companies survive. Absolutely, and I did learn it the hard way. Um, two and a half years ago, we had three projects where I was due, I think like 50 or 60,000, that all three were crated, ready to ship out, and all three hit construction delays for about two and a half months. So because of that, um, it was right around the time we were doing our biggest job ever, which was like the Delta by Marriott up in Allen. It was like 1800 square feet of decorative wall and the tariffs on steel coming out of Mexico went up. So like basically in order to float the business, I had to cash out my 401k. So that was my lesson learning on how to write contracts. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So many people who have been successful in this business have had those giant, earth-shattering, company-shattering problems that they've dealt with, but then they came out the other end successful, and they learned from that, and they learned not to make that same mistake again. Absolutely, man. And I'm not trying to disrespect anybody who calls himself a woodworker, but I'm not a woodworker. I'm a businessman, and my job is sales. <clears throat> the shop stuff, in the shop, making this stuff, that's the easy part. It's continually landing business. That is the most difficult part. Yeah, that is the difference between woodworking and a woodworking business. Between furniture making and a successful furniture business. What's some advice that you could leave people with who are listening to this? 
people who have not traveled your path but want to travel your path people who can learn from your life experiences if they want to survive in this industry couple things number one if anybody's going to start out doing this that wants to do this full time before you even start looking at like materials and things you want to make go online go to etsy go to instagram and go look at what everybody else is making then try to figure out what you can make that separates you from the pack because if you're going to be competing like there's two avenues to really go in woodworking mass production or custom there's a handful of companies that can do both because they have the financial backing to do it most of us don't so out of those two avenues those are two completely separate paths to go down but i would still say figure out what everybody else is doing and then what can you make that separates you from the pack the second thing probably the best advice i would really try to say is be extremely cognizant and aware of your material costs versus what you charge for a build. I can't tell you how many times, you know, DIYers and garage warriors have hit me up going, hey, I made this table for $4,000. Awesome, man, congrats. Yeah, I made a little bit of profit. Well, the slab cost me 2,000, fishing reels cost me 500, um, you know, a little bit of epoxy and that was it. Well, who made the base? Was it steel fabricated? Did you have to get it powder coated? Because that alone is another 1500 bucks. Are you factoring, factoring in your labor? Okay, after that, are you also factoring in 36% for taxes being taken out of your final profit margins to pay yourself? So run all those numbers back and then don't forget about your disposable material costs. Sandpaper, router bits, C-channel, whatever. Factor everything in before you understand your pricing. It always comes back to pricing. That is one of the top, if not the top thing that people talk about when they talk about running a successful furniture company. So, so important to always keep in mind. The third thing, and the third thing I would say, and I think this is crucial, and you actually brought it up earlier, never be afraid to say no. Not every client that hits you up is actually gonna be a client. Um, your job, and I think a lot of people when they first start out in this full time, they feel like they have to take every job just to build a portfolio, just to keep money coming in and out, whether they lose money or not, they feel like that's their obligation. Learn when to say no, because you have to set your starting value that can never go down. It only has to go up. So once you set that value, do not move from that value. That's your standard set that standard, live and die by it. Doc, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for sharing the good and the bad and the ugly of the furniture business. Truly appreciate it. And I know you love talking about this stuff. So if people want to reach out and talk more with you, is that all right? Hit me up. Let me know if you have any questions or if you just want to talk business because I will talk business day and night. I bet you would. And that is exactly why I had you on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. 
and feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening.